Glory, hallelujah. Glory, praise to Jehovah. Our God is marching on. His truth is marching on. That's why we're here. I'd like to continue in our study this morning uh, towards Romans 8. We're not going to be quite to Romans 8 yet, but we're, we're getting closer. Uh, before we get started, though, I wanted to show you a little something. Um, just to whet your appetite, I don't know if you can see this back there or not. This is an electrical socket, an outlet. Don't worry, it's not wired. I'm not going to electrocute myself. Uh, but uh, this reminds me of a couple decades or so ago, and Paul Brown, I'm indebted to you for how to tell this story. One of my offspring, won't mention any names, uh, was eyeing one of these in the house. And uh, as that was happening, uh, I said, no. Now, if you were to fill in the blanks for what happened after that, we'll just let that settle, settle there, and we'll be back to this in a little bit, because that actually is a part of what we'll be looking at uh, this morning. So I invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans in chapter 8. So we're going to do a little bit of a uh, review here first. Uh, Romans 8.1, we looked at last week, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what we looked at last week is that little word therefore is in there. And just as a bit of review, if you see, if you're reading the Bible and you see the word therefore, what question should you ask? What's it there for? So anytime you see that, it's referring back to something else, and that's what we need to do. So last week, we looked at the context. The context is how something fits into the larger picture, and we went back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, where we saw that God had given to his people his perfect law that they were to perfectly obey in order to have a perfect life in perfect relationship to him. God's people, he gave to them his law, his perfect law, that they were to perfectly obey in order to have the perfect life and perfect relationship with him. But because we cannot perfectly obey, we saw there was a gap between who God is and who we are. And there are two wrong ways to try to bridge that gap. One is we can bring God down. We can say, well, he didn't really mean that. He wasn't serious when he said that. Or when he said don't steal, he didn't mean the band-aids at work. He was talking about big things. Or we bring ourselves up in the sense that we think more of ourselves than we should. Well, it's not that bad. it, It just was a little thing. I didn't do that badly. We try to bridge that gap. And those are unsuccessful ways we try that. Then we saw in the conclusion of that that God actually provided for them Moses as a mediator, one who stood between God and them. And Moses was really the foreshadowing of the true mediator who was to come, Jesus Christ. And so God gave this law that we could not obey, gave a mediator to come between us and God, And so last week, as illustrated by that gap, we have a problem with the law. Today, we're going to look at why we have that problem. Why does that problem exist? Because only once we understand what that gap is and why we have that gap will we be able to understand the significance of Paul's statement in chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
So we're actually going to take one step back from Romans 8 and are going to spend this morning in Romans 7. So uh, you can turn back there. And before I read those verses that we're going to look at today, I'd like to uh, just offer a word of prayer to the author. Father, we are here to hear from you. It is your glory that we seek. It is your truth marching on in our lives and in this world that we seek. Uh, It is being able to sing hallelujah, praise to God that we desire in our lives. And so I pray that you would meet each of us here this morning as according to our need. All of us need to be changed in some way. Some of us need to change in our thinking. Some need to change in our attitudes. Some need to change in our ability to live life in this world. We all need some kind of change. And we pray that your spirit would work this morning with the songs, the prayers, the things that we've heard, and now your word to change us, to mold us into your image. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, if, you, uh, if you didn't happen to notice in your bulletins, there is a note sheet there for those of you who like to take notes and follow along. That'll be available to you as well. Uh, but right now, I'm going to read Romans 7, verses 7 to 25. And Paul is jumping in. If, if you remember, we talked about there's a problem between us and the law. And, God, and Paul is starting to talk about that here. He says, well, th- what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold under sin, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing." Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What Paul is talking about here in Romans 7, that there are three things that the law reveals to us. There are three things that the law reveals to us 
why we can say that the law and me are not perfect together, that we don't get along well with the law, that the law creates this gap. There are three things. The first one is found in verses 7 to 12. So he first answers the objection. You could say, well, the problem is not me. The problem is the law. The problem is God. And he says, no, the law is the law's sin by no means. He said, the law is not the problem here. God is not the problem. He says, I would not have known sin if it hadn't been for the law. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. So apparently Paul had a problem with coveting. Coveting is having a strong desire for something that doesn't belong to you. I want my neighbor's house. I want my neighbor's car. I want my neighbor's wife, he says in the, in the law. I want this thing or this person that belongs to my neighbor. And Paul said, I was living life thinking I was okay until the law came and said, you shall not covet. And, you know, if, I don't know if you're like me with you get up in the morning, I have to make sure every hair is in place. Make sure there's no smudges. Make sure everything is okay. Uh, and if we look in there and something is wrong, what are our choices? Break the mirror. It's obviously not telling me what I want to hear. Or I make an appropriate adjustment, right? What Paul is saying is that's what the law does for us. Look what he says there again. If it had not been for the law, this is in verse 7, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And whatever your particular sin is, the law defines that. So the first thing the law reveals to us is that I am a sinner. The law reveals that I am a sinner. As I hold the mirror of God's word up and I compare myself to what's in there, I suddenly realize that I am not measuring up to what God has said I should be, and it reveals that I am a sinner. But it does something else, too, in revealing that I'm a sinner. It first tells me what sin is, because I really thought I was okay until I see what God's standard of right or wrong is. But look in verse 8. He says, more than that, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin is dead. He said, when the law said, do not covet, all right, I saw that I was a sinner. It revealed to me that I'm a sinner. But he says that it produced in me coveting of all kind. Well, how does that happen? So I look at the law, and instead of correcting me, it produces more coveting. It said, don't covet, and then it produced more coveting. And he says, it's because sin within me was aroused by that commandment to say no. Now, there's a couple ways I think that can happen. One is... If I go over here, so I'm going to do this, the law says, no, that's coveting. All right, let me do this. No, that's coveting. Well, let me try this. No, that's coveting. So everywhere we go, we find that we're coveting. But back to our example of our outlet, those of you who are parents will know the answer to this. So when you tell your child, I do not want you touching that outlet, what have you just done? What's that? You've told them to touch it, right? What have you done? You have aroused within them by the command of no an increased interest in what this thing is that you are saying no to. 
It's very easily illustrated in our children because they are less guarded. They haven't learned the intricacies of saying, well, no, that's wrong, so I'm not going to do that. They said, don't touch the socket. I'm still interested in what's in there, but I'm not going to let them know I'm interested in what's in there. I'll wait till they leave, and then I'll go explore it. Children don't have that filter. They just do what they're going to do. Laurel and I were at a, at a play Friday night called The Fantastics. Uh, it's about two fathers trying to figure out how to raise their children. And they sing a song together, which illustrates that everybody knows that this is an issue. Here's part of the song. Dogs got to bark, a mule's got to bray, soldiers must fight, and preachers must pray. And children, I guess, must get their own way the minute that you say no. Why did the kids pour jam on the cat? Raspberry jam all over the cat. Why should the kids do something like that when all that we said was no? My son was once afraid to swim. The water made him wince. Until I said he mustn't swim, he's been swimming ever since. Why did the kids put beans in their ears? No one can hear with beans in their ears. After a while, the reason appears they did it because we said no. Make sure you never say no. I think that's a humorous illustration of what Paul is talking about here because when the law says no, the sin that is inside us says, why not? Why can't I? I don't see what's wrong with that. It can't be a problem just to look, just a little look. Sin wells up inside of us and deceives us, Paul says, into thinking that it's okay, that God didn't really mean what he said. And when he says no, it stirs this up within us. So we have a problem. The first thing is that the law reveals to me that I am a sinner. The law reveals to me that I'm a sinner. And then verse 9, he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and killed me. So the commandment, you remember back in Deuteronomy 5, was so that God says, if you obey this, you will live. It will go well with you and that you will live long in the land. And what Paul is saying here, because of sin, when the law comes... It kills me. I die. I am dead. And what does it mean to be dead? Well, the law proves to be death in three areas in our lives. There is spiritual death, and we're all in that situation apart from Christ. We are spiritually dead. That is, we are separated from God. We are not united with Him, and we are eternally separated from Him. But we have death in in our mind, in our emotions, in our thoughts, We have destructive thoughts, harmful emotions, selfishness, unkindness, ideas that are opposed to God. Our thinking is distorted. Our thinking is uh, warped, and it leads us down paths of of death and harm. And death doesn't necessarily mean this physically dying, but things that are destructive, things that are not healthy, things that separate us from one another and destroy relationships. And then finally, physical death. The body dies, it disintegrates, it decays. The death that we see in our world, the death that we see in our lives is a result of sin, saying no to God. God has said, don't touch, and we say, why not? 
and we touch. The law reveals that I'm a sinner. So I can imagine if you follow Paul's argument here, he says, okay, I get it. I get it. I'm a sinner, so let me fix it. I need to start obeying. So the law says don't do this. I haven't been doing it, so let me start doing it. I'm going to start obeying. Well, that's where he gets now into the second thing that the law reveals about us, and that's in chapter, or chapter 7, verses 13 to 20. He says, did that which is good then bring death to me? Because he says the law is righteous and holy and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. And here it comes. He says, I don't even understand my own actions. This is in verse 15. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He says, I agree with what God's law says, and I want to do it, and I can't do it. And I know there are things I should not do that I should stop doing, and I can't stop doing them. Am I the only one that lives there? Does anybody else live there? All right, there are four or five people willing to admit that you live there. And the rest of us, I don't know, I won't say anything about the rest of us. There are things you want to do, and you know they're right to do, and you don't do them. And there are things that you know you shouldn't be doing, and you find yourself continuing to do them. Paul says, I don't understand my actions. I don't understand what's going on. And what he does is he recognizes that there's something more sinister going on in him than just this surface obedience or disobedience. There's something more dark, something more dangerous, something more sinister going on. He says, now if I do not, this is in verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, I keep on doing. I mean, how many times does he say the same thing? I want to do it, and I can't, and I don't want to do it, and I keep doing it. He says, I find this in verse 17, it is no longer I who do it, but sin dwells within me. I do not have the ability to stop what I'm doing and to do what is right. And then in verse 20, he says, now if I do not now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin which dwells in me. He says, I find this principle within me that there is an enemy within that prevents me from doing that which I know is the right thing to do, and I cannot stop doing those things which I know I should stop doing. This is very important for us to recognize that sin is not fundamentally what I do, Sin is fundamentally who I am. Sin is not fundamentally what I do. It's not my behavior. It's not my actions. It's who I am. Sin is rooted in me. I sin, I, I sin because that's who I am. I'm not a good person gone bad. I'm a sinful person who, Paul says, there's nothing good that dwells in me. 
Even if I want to do the right thing, I cannot do it. I said, well, that's an uplifting message. That's really uh, happy. I heard this illustration from a seminary professor of mine, and I still like it. He said, imagine a room, a closed room. There's only one door on one side, and it's locked. And in that room are all kinds of fruits and vegetables and grain. There are tomatoes and wheat and cabbages and apples and pears. There's an abundance of fruit and vegetables, and there's you. And all of a sudden, the door in the corner opens, and a very hungry tiger is introduced to that room. What is the tiger going to eat? (laughs) The tiger has a choice about what he's going to eat. But does he? What is the tiger going to eat? Any guesses? He's going to eat you. He's going to eat me, right? Why? Because by nature, the tiger eats meat. There is a choice, but there really is no choice because by nature, the tiger eats meat. And so he's going to eat us instead of the fruits and vegetables that are amply supplied. That's the description of who we are. By nature, we have sin deep within us. And though a choice is presented to us, it's not really a choice because we are going to choose to sin when God says no. What is Paul's conclusion to that we're going to get to next? So the first part is this, the law reveals that I am a sinner, but the second thing that the law reveals to us is that I am a slave to sin. It reveals that I'm a sinner. Well, if it just ended there, well, I could change. I could modify myself. But Paul says, no, the law also reveals that I am a slave to sin. So then he goes on in verse 21 for the third thing that the law reveals to us. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in the inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what's his conclusion? He reviews again in verse 21 to 23, I find this law, I want to do right, but evil lies close at hand. This is in my inner being. I delight in the law of God. Yet from that same inner being, there's a war going on in me. There's this battle between what is right and what is wrong, and I'm losing the battle. I cannot win this battle as hard as I try. And what's his conclusion in verse 24? I'm wretched. I'm wretched. Like I said, this is very uplifting, right? He says, I am wretched, I am miserable, I am distressed, I am pathetic. There is guilt, there is depression, there is anxiety, there is fear, there is a sense of helplessness. But here's the point. What's his conclusion? Thanks be to God, in verse 25, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. 
Jesus Christ is the one who comes to rescue him and is the one who comes to rescue us by his life, his death, and his resurrection. Thanks be to God. Proper gratitude, and I think I said this maybe last week too, proper gratitude for my rescue requires awareness of my wretchedness. Paul starts off by saying, wretched man that I am, I am miserable, I am pathetic, I am distressed, I can't get myself out of this, who is going to rescue me? And when he finds that it is Jesus who's going to rescue him, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So the first thing the law reveals to us is that we are sinners, that I am a sinner. The second thing that the law reveals to us is that I am a slave to sin. I cannot stop doing no matter how hard I try. And this applies to believers and unbelievers. This is not, this is not selective. This is all of us. And the third thing it reveals to us is that I need a Savior. The law reveals to me that I need a Savior. I think it's very interesting what Paul says here. He's basically saying, you don't need a change of behavior. You need a Savior. You don't need a change of behavior. You need an inward change that you can't do. Paul could have said, wretched man that I am, what am I going to do to get myself out of this mess? And that's what our natural tendency is to do. Wretched man that I am, what am I going to do to get me out of this mess? But by this time, Paul recognizes there's nothing he can do to get himself out of this mess. He doesn't figure out what he can do. He says, I need someone to rescue me. I need someone out there who's going to come to me and jump in the water and rescue me. So let's do a little bit of thinking this through. That's the last part on your outline. Here is a key teaching of the Bible here that God's law was not given for you to try to obey. The law was given to point you to your need for rescue. The law was not given for us to obey or for us to try to obey on our own. The law was given to demonstrate to us that we need to be rescued because when we look in the mirror of the law, we find that we fall short. And we need someone to help us. I can't even fix myself with what I see in the mirror. I need someone else to come and fix me. We don't need a change of behavior. We need a savior. We need someone to rescue us. Well, what does this inward war look like? We're talking about this battle, this inward war that's within us. What does it look like? Well, there can be private thoughts sometimes awful thoughts, dark thoughts, unkindness, immorality, hatred, murderous thoughts, cruelty, jealousy, coveting, thoughts of self-harm. That's part of where the battle is within us, just in the privacy of our own thoughts, the darkness of our thoughts. What about actions, lying, cheating, stealing, viewing pornography, unwholesome books, music that takes us to bad places, bad habits, addictions? <coughs> Sorry. So some of these are the actions that we struggle with. We see these behaviors in our lives. What about responses to hard times? This world is filled, isn't it, with bad drivers, 
This world is filled with bad bosses and there are difficult children. There's illness. There are financial setbacks. How do we respond? What are the battles there? We respond with anger, revenge, gossip, blame. We overeat from stress. We numb the pain with substances. We have this inward battle going with inside of us in our response to the things that are happening. The bottom line, it's not bad circumstances that make us do the bad things we do. It's not difficult people that make us think the things we do. The problem is in us. There is hardwired in us, there is hardwired in you a sinister enemy called sin that you cannot get rid of. There is hardwired in you a sinister enemy called sin that you cannot get rid of. Well, you may say, you may be sitting there and say, well, I don't have this battle. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have this battle going on inside of me. I don't have this battle between the law of God and the law of sin. I am just fine. Well, you've deceived yourself into thinking you're okay. I'm just going to give it to you straight. I'm sorry. There's no no easy way to sugarcoat that. I'm just going to give it to you. You have deceived yourself into thinking you're okay. There's no conflict between who you are and who God is because you've done either what we said before. You've elevated yourself. You've said, I'm I'm better than I think I am or better than I, I think I'm better than I really am. Or God didn't really mean what he said. We sort of bring God down. So you've eliminated the conflict because you've just sort of denied the reality. If you're an unbeliever, someone who has not trusted Jesus as your Savior, you don't have the law of God speaking to you. And if you're a believer, you have a heart that's hardened to the voice of God. All of us should be able to identify something that God is fingering in our lives that he desires to change, that he desires to purge out of our lives. And if we're not aware of those things, it's very possible that we have a heart that's hardened ourselves to the voice of God. The answer to that is ask God to reveal himself to you. Show, ask him to show you who you really are, which is one of the reasons to read the Bible. As you read, ask God to show you. As you look in the mirror, ask him to show you who you are. Well, if you do have this war going on, I'm so sorry. <coughs> If you do have this war going on inside of you, you need to remember uh, that's good news. I said, now you're really crazy, right? If you have this war going on, it's good news. Why is that good news? It's because God is confronting your sin and drawing you to himself. God is not letting you get away living with this slavery to sin inside of you. He is confronting that sin so that you would not change your behavior you would change your loyalties. Not so you would change your behavior, but you would come to him for help, that you would come to him for the healing that is necessary. It's a good thing if that war is going on. You need to recognize that you don't need to be reformed. You need to be rescued. You don't need to be reformed. You need to be rescued. You don't need to change your behavior. You need to be rescued. And if Jesus rescues you, the behavior change will come but you need to be rescued. John 3.16 says what God's motive for this is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, would not die, but have everlasting life. You don't need to try harder to be good. You need to run to Jesus for his goodness. So when you turn to him, the Savior, in confession, admitting with God, yes, I have done this, this is who I am, in repentance, no, I don't want to be that way. God, please forgive me and please change me. 
The rest of Romans 8, we're going to be digging out a little bit more of what that means and what God is doing and has done to get us there. But this is why Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has removed that condemnation from us. And what better way to enter into a time around the Lord's table and invite the people to come up for that than to reflect on what Jesus has done for us.